Thank you, Scott, for that introduction. Um, Scott said I have three beautiful, wonderful daughters. Uh, and so I, I joke some, we joked sometimes that my oldest two daughters are engaged in an arranged marriage with your two sons. Uh, so, so on this trip, is, we're just checking up on the progress, spiritual and moral progress of your children, uh, to see how that goes. Um, and I appreciate the introduction. I was actually reading some of the bios in the back, and I just had to say, uh, you know, for Carrie's bio, it says she works at a university in Houston. We do have to say she works at Rice University. You guys may know it as a Division I football powerhouse. Um, no, I, I, was, uh, I drive past the Rice Stadium on the way to the Med Center to visit uh, parishioners that are at the hospital. And they have, you know those banners that'll hang on football stadiums? You know, five, six-story banners. And at, like most schools, you assume it would say something about their mascot. You know, go owls, or get your talons out, or something. But at Rice, it says, Rice means business. Join the MBA program. <laughs> There's nothing like that at any other Division I college. Uh, but that's, that's, that's Rice. Uh, um, but I, yes, I'm from, grew up in, in Vero Beach, Florida. My wife is from Dallas, Texas. Uh, we met at college at Washington Lee University, so I think you missed Lexington, Virginia, where you lived. Uh, and um, we went to school uh, at Trinity Seminary in Pittsburgh. So I, there I met uh, John Locke, who was a curate here um, at All Souls. And also I was there the entire time with Father Charles Blizzard, um, who's here and also a uh, chaplain at the school. Um, Charles was uh, famous as uh, the quarterback for our football team. We had a flag football team. We were called the Kneelers. Um, the Steelers. Oh, you get it. Okay, good. I didn't, didn't have to explain it. Uh, and when we played a game against Virginia Theological Seminary, and uh, Charles had the ball, was running out of bounds, and uh, knocked some VTS player out. You know, they both had bloodied noses, but Charles was standing. Uh, so he's a tough guy. Uh, but I do want to thank uh, All Souls Episcopal. I want to thank uh, Father Patrick, uh, the clergy and staff here, for helping make this possible. And for the Anglican Foundation, um, you know, giving uh, to this to be able to help uh, encourage and uplift the people of God and for the furtherance uh, of the gospel. Um, the title of my talk uh, is The Gospel Monday Through Friday, Glimpses of Grace and Relationships. The Gospel Monday Through Friday, uh, the gospel, Glimpses of Grace and Relationships. When I say Monday through Friday, I'm thinking of as is the theme for the conference, the gospel in, uh, in everyday life, grace in the grind. Uh, when I'm thinking of everyday life, uh, Monday through Friday, I'll be using different clips from uh, magazines, um, posts from uh, the Mockingbird blog. Mockingbird has a blog, and several different people will post on the blog, and they'll post things from culture, um, from, you know, from news, from music, from different artistic sources, um, from different things happening um, in the world, and they use that to help approach the gospel, help explain the good news um, of God, because I believe that it's through that, through everyday life, um, that God reaches us, through the Monday and Friday, not just Sunday, uh, but the rest of the week as well. And like Jesus, uh, God works through relationships, through actual people, not just teaching, uh, but the experience of life. And that through those relationships, we're able to become uh, aware of our continual need for grace. Through those relationships, loved ones, work, um, family, friends, uh, we're able to understand our need for grace. Monday through Friday, uh, and another reason I like uh, think about that is Jesus spent most of his time in everyday life um, around people. He did go to the temple in Jerusalem, but not very often. And when he did, it didn't turn out so well. You know, it was a very intense time. Uh, had much resistance there, although he did do great teaching. Um, he did go to the synagogue regularly, but, but almost all the teaching we have from him uh, is outside of the synagogue, right? Um, his best teaching, and most of his time, was spent in the marketplace, in the countryside, in people's homes, at dinner, over a meal, um, this is where he was able to relate to the people. He spoke in parables. He spoke in parables, and the setting of his parables was where people were living, farming, um, metaphors that they understood. He talked a lot about money. Everybody understood money. He talked about things that they dealt with, and he talked with all kinds of people of all levels of society, 
with men and women, with Zacchaeus the tax collector, with the rich young ruler, with the leper, the Samaritan, the Syrophoenician woman, Jew, Gentile, everyone, and everyday life. And I think in working through relationships and thinking of your relationships, um, those meaningful relationships in your life, helps us to get away from thinking too conceptually or idealistically. It's easy to, to get there when we read scripture or think about uh, Christianity. To not stay in the ivory tower theories, um, but to make sure it can hold water. That what we say and what we believe can hold water in our life, make sense in actual relationships. Not just something that may sound good, it may be true, but doesn't actually work or fit when we leave the church, when we go through our Monday through Friday. And I think Jesus uses these relationships in our lives and these everyday activities and the everyday parables to do something different with sin than the way the Pharisees were approaching it. They knew their scripture, the Pharisees, but mostly actually they talked about the rules, about the rules, about the rules of scripture. Jesus looked directly at scripture, but then took it to their lives. And humanity and the church has benefited, and yet, as, um, uh, as we've heard, struggled with this gospel approach ever since. Pulling back on grace and returning to the rules and to the morals. Enjoying the grace, but then fearing the loss of control that grace and this forgiveness might bring. Embracing the, the mercy and the freedom in Christ, but then pulling back when people start sinning again. Uh, it's troublesome. It's difficult. I was in the Denver airport one time with my wife and kids, and we were enjoying a nice long delay there at the gate. Uh, <laughs> and we were sitting there, and, and a man next to me, in his, uh, probably in his late 60s, saw me there with, with my kids and just started chatting. And he said, do your kids ever watch VeggieTales? I said, oh yeah, you know, we've seen some VeggieTales. And he started talking to me about VeggieTales, and it turns out his son was the co-creator of VeggieTales. Uh, and he handed me this signed card, you can see it later, but you can't keep it, uh, by uh, one of the, the co-creators of, of, of VeggieTales. I think he's uh, Larry the Cucumber. Um, and so VeggieTales was these computer animated shows for preschool age children, um, often used at churches when you run out of a Sunday school lesson, you know, <laughs> you play VeggieTales or uh, you need to keep the toddler busy while you're doing something else, you put VeggieTales, you know it's going to be fine, not scary, and you know, talk about the Bible and teach a good lesson. Well, the co-creator of VeggieTales um, had a change of heart about what he was doing with the, the uh, VeggieTales, about the, the message he was trying to send to kids. And there's this interview that was posted on Mockingbird quite some time ago, um, and he was looking back uh, uh, and had a remarkable change of heart about the whole process of how do you teach morals and what's this all about? He said he looked back on the previous 10 years. He said, I realized I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. To behave Christianly without teaching them Christianity, or I would say the gospel. And that was a pretty serious conviction. You can say, hey kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or, hey kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity. He says, it's morality. And that was a huge shift for me in the American Christian ideal. We're drinking a cocktail that's a mix of Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and the gospel. And when we intertwine them so completely, we can't tell them apart anymore. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams, being good so, your dreams, so God will make all your dreams come true. It's the Oprah God. So I had to peel that apart. He began to understand that uh, he was just teaching moralism. Do good. Be like David. Except with the Bathsheba part. Uh, <laughs> be strong like Moses. Except for the murdering and the lying. But other than, be like Moses. Be like Jesus, even though you can't, because you're not the Savior, and you can't turn water into wine and all these things. But giving you these tasks, just telling you to be like something. Moralism is the idea that uh, you can give somebody the rules, the law, the law of God, 
And that if you tell them to do it, it will make them good. If you just tell them to do good, they will be good. Again, that, that sounds nice in our head, but in real life, you know, have a child. <laughs> Try that with your child. <laughs> Cookie jar. Don't eat from it. Right. They're going to eat from it. The minute my kids started to walk, I said, all right, let's go this way. They would have a big smile and they'd walk the other way. Right. Uh, just telling somebody, some, somebody to do something doesn't make them do it. It doesn't work. But as Bob the Tomato says uh, in his interview, that isn't Christianity either. That's not the gospel message. Be good because the Bible says so. Actually, that's the law. That's the, the law of God, the rules. The law, I think the, the Ten Commandments is the uh, great picture of the law. That's not all of it. But the Ten Commandments, what you should do, what thou shalt do. Make good choices, not bad ones. Don't push don't shove, don't bite, share, apologize, right? just rules. And if that's what it is, Christianity is, is no different than any other religion. But the gospel says you do lose your temper, you do push, you do shove. I know it, and I forgive you. I love you, period. When you have that period, you can go on to fruit, you can go on to a changed life. But the gospel is honest. It doesn't just talk about perfection. It talks about who you actually are and doesn't cover its eyes. The law, however, never lets up because it's written in stone, right? Like the Ten Commandments. It's written on stone tablets. There's no exceptions, not only in God's law, but the law of the land. Unless you have a really good lawyer, you know, they're the rules of the rules, right? The rules are the rules. It's an inflexible code with enforcement. When the Apostle Paul talks about law, he talks sometimes about the law of God, meaning the, uh, all of the laws of the Old Testament or the Ten Commandments. But sometimes he also talks about uh, the little L law. The little L law is the, um, the, 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 the customary things that you're supposed to do. Maybe you're hosting a dinner. Uh, and your friends are like, oh, don't worry, you, know, you don't have to clean up. And it's like, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> the law is I've got to be cleaned up. It's got to look good. We've got to make sure this is going on. The kids look good. The dog's over here. You know, everything's, that's an expectation that feels like a law. feels like it's required. Um, when you're going out at a certain party, you know, I always love how people describe the party, you know, what to, what to wear. Uh, my favorite is dressy casual. <laughs> that's helpful, right? Thank you. Uh, but there's some sort of expectation in the law that you're going to have to look a certain way, draw, wear a certain thing, be a certain way to get approval. Um, those are social laws. Uh, the academic law, the expectation of making the grade, being good enough, of these things that we have to meet, um, that you feel bad when you don't, they make you feel uh, unworthy. There's no exceptions to them. Uh, I was uh, driving on the highway in Houston, and for a period, the, the museum, uh, I think it was of natural history, had a copy of the Magna Carta. I was visiting from England. Uh, it was this neat thing, and the billboard uh, to advertise it said, Law is all you need. <laughs> uh, we're playing on the uh, love is all you need. But no, right? Law is not all you need. Law is not enough. The law is there. It's not going away. We're thankful for the law in many cases to protect us. But we need something else. We need grace. We need forgiveness. We need the good news. Apostle Paul says that the law, as perfect it is, is we are sinners. And the law cannot do what it's supposed to do, which is make us good. In Romans 8, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of this life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law cannot make us good, he says. The law, because of our sin, cannot do what it's supposed to do, which is make us good. Make us follow the very law, the very rules and morals that are in it. Paul says it cannot save you. And again, that's true in life. The rules are the rules, boy. That can't save your son from the downward spiral of addiction. 
reminding your spouse of you know, their wedding vows will not help them to, to shape up. Uh, we need something else. We need good news. We need grace by faith so that no one may boast because we can't. We need grace. We need unmerited mercy. Unmerited merit is something you earn. You get merit badges for doing something good. Unmerited mercy, meaning um, goodness, love, without you giving anything. It's a gift. It's a total gift um, from God to us. And that love is beyond deserving. Like the parable of the workers in the vineyard. People got more than they deserved. They worked one hour, they got as much as the person who worked all day. Not fair. Also, not a good business model. (laughs) But that's how Jesus explains grace. It goes to everyone. Like baptism. That's why we baptize infants, right? Uh, They don't have to be old enough to deserve it, be good enough, smart enough. It is a total grace. The grace of God. And we need it. We need it, not just on Sunday morning, but at the right time and in everyday life. To take the message here into our lives, into our relationships. Because life is hard. Parenting is hard. Work is hard. Probably going to give a little bit more of the parenting examples because that's, that's where I live. Uh, I have three kids um, nine, seven, and four. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's where I am. And I can speak more from there because I'm able to encounter this thing called failure uh, there uh, and things not working out. Um, I think, you know, the bedtime routine, my goodness. Uh, telling my child to brush their teeth doesn't seem to make it happen. Uh, it uh, shows the limits of telling people what to do. I remember uh, thinking of the pressure of school. I was um, going on a bike path. There's a bike path in, in Chevy Chase, Maryland. It goes through Bethesda, down to D.C. And I was, it was on a Friday. It was the first week of school in September. Pastor's Day off, Friday. Uh, and I'm biking down the bike path with my daughter in the back seat. And I'm just passing by lots of people that were walking. Most people weren't biking. They were walking on the path. I wasn't going very fast, which is why I could hear their conversations. And I would bike past them and every single person to a T were talking about school. Parents talking about school. Every one of them, I couldn't believe it. I think it was nine different couples or people that were talking to each other about school, about their new teacher, about the homework load, about this. And it was the parents. It wasn't the kids. Parenting uh, consumes us. School consumes us as parents. Poor kids. Parenting is exhausting. Life is exhausting. And what's interesting is that more law, more rules, more expectations seems like a great shortcut to help us get through it. If I can just pile on the the rules or if I can pile on the rewards, right? The carrot sticks that John talked about. If I can just pile those on, maybe it'll help us get through it. Maybe it'll, it'll get it done. It'll get us what we need. Of course, that's not enough. That won't do it. I often like to look at The Onion, the satirical newspaper, the online uh, website, The Onion. Um, Often crude, but often also very insightful, as is any good satire. Insightful into human nature and the human condition. And thinking about piling on rules and expectations to children. They had this article that said, New parenting trend involves handing children bulleted list of things to accomplish by the age of 30. (laughs) And it says, uh, several family experts confirmed Friday that the latest parenting trend involves just handing children a bulleted list of things that they need to accomplish by the age of 30. An increasing number of moms and dads are taking a more direct style of parenting that involves simply printing out the list of achievements, handing it to their child, and telling them to get it done by the time they turn 30, said parenting magazine editor Mallory Schneider adding that the new technique encourages independence and has a built-in flexibility. As parents customize their list according to whatever specific expectations they have for their child. These lists often span multiple pages, contain a variety of personal and career benchmarks such as maintaining a 4.0 GPA through high school, lettering in one or more varsity sports, 
winning a debate state championship, graduating from college, earning an advanced degree, getting married, buying a home, and providing as many grandchildren as the parents dream fit, deem fit. It really puts the power in the hands of the child, typically at the age of 10 or 11. Now that's of course silly, uh, that's not what parents do, but I think it's a glimpse of the way kids feel about parents, about the expectations, implicit or explicit, about what's important, about how they receive praise and love, good game, great job on your test. You know, we give, want to give our kids praise when they do well, but sometimes, unwittingly, I think, our love and our praise is completely wound up in their accomplishments and what they do. And it's so hard not to when, you know, your child comes home from the game, and no matter what, just, great job, I love you. It's hard not to tie everything up um, in, in these expectations, these laws, little laws. But the message of law and accomplishment sends a clear message. Life is about performance. Success is important, and love is tied up in that. Receiving love and affection based on doing well, and woe to you if you don't fit in. If you don't fit into the academic mold of this world, or if you don't fit into the social mold, the many different molds found in high schools, colleges, and the real world, if you don't fit into the athletic mold, the expectations, that is a great amount of pressure that we put on ourselves, let alone from an outside source. It's reading a book that my brother gave me. It's, on, um, it's called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. Uh, and it's written for a layperson like me who doesn't know much about science. And I was really struck by the, the opening chapter and what it said about um, Einstein. Um, famous uh, Einstein, of the famous story of he, um, you know, way was, was a dropout. Uh, the, the rules were too hard for him. It says, in his youth, Albert Einstein spent a year loafing aimlessly. A year. You know, like that kid in your attic room? You, know? <laughs> you don't get anywhere by not wasting time, says the author. Something, unfortunately, that the parents of teenagers tend frequently to forget. Einstein was in Pavia. He had joined his family, having abandoned his studies in Germany, Unable to endure the rigors of his high school there. Einstein, unable to endure the rigors of his high school. And so he was reading Kant, attending occasional lectures. Okay, he's not like everybody. Okay, at the University of Pavia for pleasure, without being registered there or having to think about exams. It is thus that serious scientists are made. And he began to wonder if the law of universal gravity, as formulated by the father of physics, Newton, was in need of revision and would make it compatible with the new concept of relativity. He immersed himself in the problem, but it would take 10 years to resolve. 10 years of frenzied studies, attempts, errors, confusions, mistakes, articles, mistaken articles, brilliant ideas, misconceived ideas. 10 years of success, failure, success, failure. Life is hard. Life is difficult, and it's not more rules, but in his case, more space, complete freedom that opened him up to have the most amazing discovery in physics um, in the century or more. So the pressure is real for ourselves or our kids, but I think the parable of the prodigal son reminds us that grace wins in the long term, right? The, the son that went away and wasted um, his, father's, his father's money, eventually said to dad, you're dead to me. I want to take the money and leave, take the inheritance before the right time. Spent it all and came back groveling. And his dad didn't wag the finger, didn't say, I told you so, didn't say all these things that I'm sure we all would say, but instead loved him, forgave him. But it takes a long time. It may take 10 years there's no shortcuts. That's how relationships work. We're not robots. It may take more presence as a friend, being there, even though that friend who disappoints you over and over again. What do they say about parenting? Half of parenting is just showing up. 
Well, the same can be said for your coworkers, for your boss, for you. Just being there, showing you're in it with them. You're there. And of course, true for marriage as well. Sticking it out, being there is the hardest but most important part. Being there and listening keeps the relationship open, paving the way for forgiveness and restoration on both sides. The passage I want to look at today for my talk is from Luke 7. Um, I started paying more attention to this talk, I'm sorry, this section uh, of the scriptures after uh, Professor Scott Johnson translated a homily on this from a 6th century priest, uh, a homily and a poem about this sinful woman of Luke 7 by Jacob of Sherug. Uh, and if I'm not pronouncing that correct, Scott, don't, don't correct me. Um, so I'm just going to read uh, part of this, this passage to you. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the anointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Jesus said, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. One of the ironies of this passage is that we're leading up to it. Jesus is being criticized by the Pharisees again. For being one who eats and drinks with sinners, and he's a friend of sinners. So I think Jesus uses this everyday occasion at the meal, at the table, to shed light. To shed light on Simon the Pharisee, who wonders why Jesus is with sinners, as if he's not. To shine some light on his own darkness. To lead Simon to grace. Simon, you see, didn't understand Jesus' approach to God's law and this focus on grace. They thought they were doing pretty well following these rules. And he was curious about Jesus. Right? Many of the Pharisees did not want Jesus in their house at all. Simon was kind of in between. Now this woman who comes in says she is a sinner. By implication, she, she is a prostitute. She's a known prostitute uh, in that town. People know her. Shunned by men and women by day, wanted by night, and ritually unclean. And it says, And standing behind him at his feet, at Jesus' feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. She engages in worship of Jesus and a quite intimate worship at the table. Remember, reclining at table, they were, they were laying down to eat. See, I think this woman came from miles away to see Jesus because she could smell his grace from miles away. That, that cocktail mix you talked about. She knew she needed that grace. 
She knew without a doubt, with the pain and the suffering she had dealt with, that she needed it. She was starving for it. So all she could do was just worship at Jesus' feet. Simon, on the other hand, can't believe it. Doesn't Jesus know who this is? Doesn't he know who she is and what she's done? Then turning towards the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see her? Look at her. Since she's come into this house, you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus wants Simon to connect with that woman. Look at her. Look her in the eye. Don't judge above her. Don't ignore her like she's below you. I think it's so powerful. Look her in the eye. Connect with her. She's not a prostitute. She is a woman. A woman in great pain and suffering who's giving thanks to the Savior, to the Messiah. And I think about that relating to pain of the past. It's so much easier to just bury it, to ignore it, to go past it. There was an article in The Atlantic which really caught my eye, and it was speaking to Joseph Stalin's atrocities. If you remember Joseph Stalin, when he was over, uh, head of the Soviet Union, he killed millions of his own people, or committed to many atrocities during the wars, um, and rivaling, really, that of uh, Hitler and the Nazis with the amount of people they killed unlawfully. And the evil in this article is about remembering the disappeared. It says, though many millions are thought to have died as a result of communist repressions, no official national memorial exists to remember them. In fact, Vladimir Putin has presided over a rehabilitation of Stalin, emphasizing his role in winning World War II and turning Russia into a superpower. Yet, on a recent Sunday, Kosman, um, a Queens-based Russian artist, joined a small band of Russian activists who have begun hanging plaques, plaques at the last known addresses of the people that were killed, to remember them. In the corner of plaque is a blank square, empty, to show where the person, where a picture would have been. And the text is carved in hand by a rough font, similar to the used on a Soviet machinery, a nod to the manual labor they went through. One of the artists hopes to help crack the silence surrounding the atrocities. The goal, he says, is to get people talking. This history must be told in full. Remembering. Forcing us to remember what happened. To not forget the good and the bad. To remember. To look it in the eye. To deal with it. To relate to it. That it was a person. It was a human being. It is a person. It is a human being. And so Jesus asks Simon to look at the woman. And then he points out all the things that Simon hasn't done as a hospitable guest. In fact, Simon, Jesus says, if you want to be a judge, let's play that game. Let's look at yourself, Mr. Big Host. You didn't do what was customary, and this sinner did. And she went above and beyond. You see, this woman's behavior demonstrated that she was repentant. She was totally aware of her sin, her pain, and her need and her desire to be healed. And so Jesus treated her as such. Simon, however, his actions demonstrated a blindness to his own sin. And that's such a common thing, blindness to our own sin. You know, it's what your spouse has, right? <laughs> Not you. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> a penchant for judging others. Uh, in this case, Simon's you know, an easy target, but Jesus treats him accordingly. But I think we're often blind to things. It was a, a Peanuts cartoon, I think it was posted on Mockingbird not long ago, and it's uh, Charlie Brown and Lucy. You know those cartoons where they're, they're on the wall, you know, and just talking to each other. And Charlie Brown says, you know what I wonder, Lucy? Sometimes I wonder if God is pleased with me. Lucy, do you ever wonder if God is pleased with you? Lucy looks at him and says, well, he just has to be. <laughs> I thought that was a great comparison. For Lucy, well, of course, 
And for Charlie Brown, he can't believe it. He can't believe that God would actually love him. See, Charlie Brown needs some good news. Lucy needs to hear that convicting parable from Jesus. She needs to hear something that helps her see herself as she really is, to get through the blindness. But it's hard to hear. We miss the plank in our own eye, and we see the speck in our brother's. Remember, I was at a a Christian concert uh, in high school. We went with our youth group, and Jars of Clay was playing, which was a big deal. This was in the late 90s, and we were so excited to see them. And opening up for Jars of Clay was a Christian band called Plank Eye. Never heard of them. (laughs) Their name was Plank Eye. And Plank Eye was the warm-up band, and they were playing, and I was in high school, so we were on the upper balcony because that was where it was apparently cool to be. The middle schoolers were raging on the floor, meaning like just talking and being middle schoolers. And Plank Eye was playing, but nobody was paying attention to Plank Eye because they weren't jars of clay. And at a certain point, uh, the head singer of uh, Plank Eye gets on the microphone and starts berating us for not listening to him. It's like, isn't that ironic? Uh, Plank Eye is judging us uh, for, not, <laughs> for, for not listening, right? Uh, it's, Nobody can do this perfectly. Uh, But, you know, high self-confidence can be a good thing in life, right? You know, you want your surgeon to have a pretty high high self-confidence, right? Uh, To not be constantly nervous that they can't can't do it. Um, Airline pilots have have to have a high self-confidence to do what they do, uh, to be cool under pressure. So this article is is an excerpt from a book uh, called Foolproof. Why safety can be dangerous and how danger makes us safe. And it's looking at pilots and how even them, the pilots, who, again, have a high self-confidence, aren't as safe as we think. The Aviation Safety Reporting System, a branch of NASA, is probably the most important contributor to aviation safety you've never heard of. Every day, more than 200 reports, 200 reports of near-miss incidents flow into this office in Moffett Field, California. Anonymity is central to the system. So the pilots report when they have problems, when they make mistakes, uh, and they feel they can do it because it's anonymous. And so they flow into this one central place. The reports can be hair-raising, all the more so for their candor. Says one, when you consider the congested airspace in that area, it's critical that you don't turn the wrong way after takeoff. But that's what we did. Why we did that? I don't know. (laughs) Comforting. Another pilot described how he was showing his iPad to a fellow pilot, and they taxied past the spot on the runway where they were supposed to stop, until the ground control said, stop, stop. And he goes on, I would never dream of texting on my phone while driving, but was this the same thing? Yes. <laughs> Scary. Yeah, nobody else looks at their phone when they drive, just the other people on the road, right? Yeah, exactly. I had a, a prisoner of mine in D.C., and she was a, um, one of the jobs she did, she taught cooking at a Whole Foods. Uh, she knew a lot about uh, uh, natural foods, and um, she, you know, she was cooking kale chips before it was cool. Uh, not that you all do that now, or I don't, but... Uh, and uh, we had dinner at their house, and I think she was a vegetarian. And my wife was asking her about, uh, you know, being vegan. She's like, do, have you done that? Do you have friends that do that? And, and our friend said, yes, you know, I have some friends that are vegan. But she goes, that's interesting because you can't be vegan and be healthy. There are just not enough nutrients. And she goes, some of my friends um, are, are vegan, and they have actually sunken eyes. Like, they're malnourished. Like, oops, sorry about that. Got it all together. All right. Uh, they're malnourished, but they can't see it. They think what they're doing is the best thing for them. They're blind. They're literally malnourished, but they can't see it. They put so much effort into, you know, they're better at watching what they eat than any of us, but because of that, they're actually blind. They're blind to the fact that they're unhealthy. Same as similar things I've, I've read about with the raw food movement. And all that to say, not to hate on any kind of diet, but when you work hard, whatever it is, to maintain your ideals, your morality, your standards so hard 
What's interesting is you're often, therefore, blind to your weaknesses, to the chinks in your armor, because you've set the standard, and you've got to keep it. You've got to keep it. It's the Pharisee in all of us. When you read about the Pharisees in Scripture, don't just be like, oh, those silly Pharisees. That's us. That's us, too. So Simon's love language was law and rules. So Jesus throws it back at him. You see, if you live by the law, you will die by it. If you live by the rules, don't be surprised when the rules turn on you. Judge not, lest you be judged. It's going to come. A favorite uh, children's Bible is the Sally Lloyd-Jones' The Storybook Bible. She's spoken at quite a few Mockingbird conferences. And one of my favorite uh, chapters is, is the beginning of her chapter on uh, Saul, when Saul becomes Paul on the road to Damascus. And she's describing Saul. And I don't remember the, the first part, but she's just describing how righteous and holy he was, and he followed all the rules perfectly, and it goes on and on. And it says, but Saul was mean. <laughs> or it says, but Saul wasn't nice. I can't remember, but I just loved it. I'm like, isn't that great? Like, he did all the things right, but he was a jerk. He did everything right, but he was never invited to any Hanukkah parties. You know? <laughs> uh, I don't think they had those parties yet, but you know what I mean. Uh, you see, the Pharisees, they didn't think they needed grace. And that's the place we are often in. They didn't realize that they were losing those closest to them while they were working hard for their ideal, our law. And that's a place we're often in, a place our coworkers are often in, a place our kids are often in. One of my children, you know, we're born with this denial of ourselves. And we were um, at the table, and she was sitting in a booster seat. And she slipped off the booster seat and fell to the ground. She was standing, and she was two and walking. And so we said, oh, are you okay, honey? She goes, yes, I am. I didn't fall. I didn't fall. I couldn't. She denied that she fell. Like, already at that level, it's not okay to fail. It's not okay to be wrong. And that really was, that was in her. It just bubbles up within us sometimes. Um, it's not okay to fail. We have to hold the line. Can't let up. Although sometimes that self-righteousness is easy to see in others, uh, it's hard to know how to administer the medicine of grace. It's hard to know how to approach that. I remember a student minister telling me um, that teenagers are at an age when they need your love the most, but show it the least. I thought that was great. Teenagers are at the age when they need your love the most, but they show it the least. It's great when you, you, know, you love your baby and the baby smiles back. and you, know, you come home and your toddler runs into your arms. It's harder when they avoid you, <laughs> when they run away from you, when they don't want to be seen with you. But we have to fight resistance with love, not a sword. With the patience of the prodigal father. Remembering that patience and grace win in the long term. So how does Jesus approach sin in these two instances in Luke 7? Well, both approaches lead to grace. Both of them lead to the cross. But the path is different. Remember, relationally, because people are different. People are approaching it in different places. People are aware of their sin in different ways. And the time it takes is different. Sometimes you love, uh, sometimes someone you love just needs mercy. They just need a hug. They just need to be listened to. They don't need double jeopardy, right? Uh, meaning that uh, they've done something wrong, they feel bad, and then you have to wag the finger. You have to add the punishment. That's enough. They already feel it. Further punishment, in fact, may distract from the actual lesson that they might be learning. And sometimes something happens where God sheds light on our sin, where we are given time out to think about it, to reflect not on punishment and anger and guilt from someone else, but godly guilt, the guilt we feel when we know the Spirit has convicted us. That that's wrong. We need to change. It's time to turn it around. Godly guilt, not a second helping from a friend. And to do this, in Luke 7, Jesus comes in through the side door for Simon. He tells a story to Simon. Similar a little bit to how Nathan told the story to David about Bathsheba. You know, he was not uh, feeling the guilt about what he'd done. So Nathan tells him that story about the stealing of the lamb. 
or as um, Dave Zoll's dad, Paul Zoll, reminded me, Shakespeare does this uh, in Hamlet. Right? Uh, Hamlet is trying to convict his uncle who killed his dad to become king. And what does he do? He puts on a play. He puts on a play about a man killing his brother to take the throne. And it cuts Claudius to the heart. He's convicted. And he goes to pray and he's so repentant that Hamlet wants, is trying to kill him, but, but he can't because he's so repentant. He'll just go to heaven. So he doesn't kill him. But that story, that, that image, uh, convicted uh, Claudius. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Simon realizes that the one who was forgiven most was loved most. You have judged rightly, says Jesus. A direct confrontation probably wouldn't have worked for Hamlet and Claudius. And if we're honest, it often doesn't work for us. When people confront us directly, we put up our talons, we fight back. But Jesus worked through grace and relationships. He using, using the words and stories of everyday life, life to approach us. Not a new law, but instead a perfect savior who fulfilled the law. He was the one who was perfect. He is the only one who can be the best. And he did it. So it's done. He forgave the burden. The guilt that you're not enough and you're never enough is a lie. Because according to Jesus, you are a daughter and son of Christ. If you're baptized, you're in the family. And you can't be taken out. You're adopted. Legally, you are in. He forgave the burdened, and he challenged the proud to be aware of their sin. He let the law full, get the fullness of the law, so that they could see their grace. To give them a taste of their own medicine, so they could see themselves as they were. So they could see their need for grace, for mercy, for Jesus. And he gave those who were burdened, weighed down by life's circumstances by morals, by guilt, the grace they needed to stand up and come back to life, to be restored. Now the law is still good, and it's not going anywhere. It is present, and often we're thankful for the order and the structure it brings. But parents, right, we still have to teach our children. We still have to, to disciple them. But what to do with the sinful nature that they have and that we have, as Paul says, The law doesn't bring the dead back to life. It doesn't bring the sinner back to life. The law doesn't save us. It merely drives us to the cross of Christ and his grace. You can parent assuming you have it all together or that your children are blank slates that you just have to fill up with good rules. You can treat your spouse like a student with didactic lessons, suggestions, and rules. But your kids and your spouse... And you will be disappointed. Marriage, it said, is the schoolhouse for love. It's where we learn about love through life, through a real relationship. The ups and downs are failures where we learn about love, what it means to ask for forgiveness, to be forgiven. So we learn through everyday life, not by a rule book, not by check marks and grades, but the bumps in the road that can lead us to those glimpses of grace. So I encourage you to step back, to let grace shine through. I want to close with a a short story. Um, It's adapted from a book called The Invisible Front, Love and Loss in an Era of Endless War. And it's called uh, All Quiet at Walter Reed. Walter Reed was the Army Medical Hospital. Now it's been merged with Bethesda Naval. Um, But at the time, it was in Northeast D.C., uh, an old, old building. Um, and uh, obviously famous, if you remember, um, for being uh, decrepit uh, and, and poor quarters for our veterans. I think this will help us to see uh, a glimpse of bringing love and grace uh, to a situation. The cannon blast echoed between the rec- red brick buildings of Walter Reed Army Medical Center, the military's flagship hospital. It was 2005, and the century-old medical facility was struggling to keep pace with the thousands of veterans 
We've begun returning from Iraq and Afghanistan with post-traumatic stress disorder or other psychological problems. Most of them were extraordinarily sensitive to loud noises. And the cannon blasts that marked the start of each day at Walter Reed triggered unsettling memories of the carnage that had hospitalized them in the first place. The base's commanders argued that Walter Reed, like any army post, needed to abide by the military protocols, law, rules, mandating that each morning begin with soldiers raising the American flag, snapping to attention, and standing in formation until the cannon blast sounds. Dr. John Bradley, a retired army colonel who was the head of Walter Reed's psychiatry program, said that the hospital's top doctor repeatedly petitioned the military commander to end the practice of firing the cannon, only to be rebuffed each time. At a certain point, the medical staff decided to take matters into their own hands. Our hospital commander disabled the cannon so it wouldn't fire. That's love over the law. The army needs laws and rules, right? To form the army, to run, to keep us safe. But at this point, the right thing was to destroy the cannon, to kill the cannon so that healing could come, to kill the cannon so that new life, resurrection could come for these wounded and weighed down soldiers. They needed the death of that law to allow new life, grace, to begin the long process of healing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this message from Luke 7, from our Savior who sees us, knows our sin, knows everything, what we can see and what we hide. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May the gospel help us to go in peace. And may we carry that peace with us, with loved ones in our lives, our workplace, and in our families, for your glory. Amen. Amen.